Good morning again, um, and greetings from Faith Christian Fellowship in Walnut Creek. That is the church that maybe many of you remember as being Walnut Creek Christian Reformed Church. We are still CRC, but uh, long before I got there, actually, I think around the year 2000 or so, they changed our name to Faith Christian Fellowship, um, and I do bring you greetings from them. It's good. Um, I enjoy being able to get away from my usual, my usual pulpit, my usual church, my usual congregation, not because I don't like it, but just because I enjoy seeing what is going on in other places? How, how are some of our other churches, our other sister churches, how, how are they worshiping? How are you worshiping? What is that like? It's an encouragement, I know, at least for me and hopefully for you, for each of you as well, to, uh, to know that you are not alone. I know here in a, in a town like Ripon, it's pretty hard to forget that you're alone. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I grew up here in Ripon. I actually grew up over in First Ripon. And so this is very much kind of home in many ways for me, kind of coming back here um, to Ripon and being able to, uh, to worship here on a Sunday morning and spend time with you. It's good. It's good to do that, and it's good to be here. And I've been excited and looking forward to this Sunday for uh, for quite a while, for a couple of months now, ever since um, I was first reached out to and invited to come and, and be here today. At um, this past summer at Faith Fellowship, we spent the summer doing a sermon series that was that really revolved around several attributes of God, several characteristics of God. These things that when we look at Scripture, when we read Scripture, these things that Scripture point us to and say, hey, look, this this is God. This is who God is. This is what he is like. This is what he does. And in many ways, it kind of rolls over and it becomes not just this is who God is. It becomes these are the reasons why and some of the reasons why we worship the God that we do. It was good for us as a church to kind of step back and spend time looking at these attributes because it's a good reminder for us to remember sometimes why do we worship this God that we worship? I found in my own life and for myself, it can often become relatively easy for me, somebody who spends so much time day in, day out, every single week, somebody who's been around the church my entire life, it becomes relatively easy for me to almost become bored in many ways with God, bored with the gospel, bored with scripture, bored with just the whole notion and concept of church. So that church, it's not, it's not something that's bad or negative per se. It's something that I've just, it's just, it's, it's just what we do. It's rote. It's tradition. It's just kind of what, it's what we do every single Sunday. And we can forget sometimes in those situations why we do what we do and what makes this great God of ours so great. The attributes of God, these are the parts of God that make him unique and different from all other possible gods. Some of these attributes, some of these attributes admittedly are, they're hard to swallow sometimes. If you think about it, they're, they're really hard to swallow. Some of them are really easy to swallow. Like some of the easy ones to swallow, you know, some of those easy ones are, are God's love, God's mercy, God's grace. We, we like thinking about those because those are the ones that, that kind of make us feel good and kind of feel these warm fuzzies all the time. Those are, maybe those are the, maybe those are the attributes that actually brought us and drew us 
to this point where we made this, this decision for ourselves to say, look, I'm going to worship and I'm going to believe in God. I'm not just going to go to church because it's what I've always done. These are the reasons why I am going to be drawn to God. Those are the easy ones, things like love and grace and mercy, that sort of stuff. Others, other attributes are, you might say something more like an acquired taste. Maybe like, like coffee, for example. Many of us, we probably, while we might drink coffee now and consider it a staple of our morning routine, coffee was not always something that we really enjoyed drinking. I, we, um, we gave, I remember a, a couple months back, we gave one of our kids, we gave them a sip of our coffee and he looked at us, his face all puckered up. He's like, tastes like dirt. Why do you drink this? I can't get through my morning without it. <laughs> It's an acquired taste, and some of these attributes are the same way. Scripture teaches these attributes, and, and we can, maybe even we can, uh, we can recognize their truth and their necessity to keep everything that we know about God together and working together and consistent. But they perhaps they, they hit our tongue with a certain amount of bitterness, and we really only come to appreciate them over time as we mature in our faith and as we mature and deepen and grow in our relationship with God. Other attributes, as I mentioned, strike us as just downright nasty. We just don't like them. We don't like talking about them. We don't like thinking about them. They, they're, they're parts of God that maybe we, we, they're the parts of God that we tend to shy away from because because sometimes they just sound completely contrary in many ways to who we understand God to be. I want to spend time this morning looking at an attribute that tends to be more in that middle category, that, that acquired taste category for many people. It's an attribute that in many ways it lays the foundation of everything that we understand about ourselves and about God as we sit here and kind of locate ourselves within this this broader reformed tradition. And yet, it's also an attribute that can be enormously, enormously misunderstood at times. And at times, it can even be flat out ignored. We're going to spend some time this morning looking at and thinking about God's sovereignty. What is it? What, is, what does it mean when we say God is sovereign? Or maybe one small bit of that. What does that look like? And how does that ultimately play out and affect how we live and what our life looks like on a daily basis? Before we go any further, we've spent a lot of time in prayer already this morning, which I think is great. Before we go any further, I'd like to, read, I'd like to pray um, just a real quick prayer as we prepare our hearts and our minds to... Uh, to come to the word. So let's pray one more time before we go to the word and then we're going to take a look at our text. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we, um, as we approach your word this morning, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, Lord, that we may hear, that we may see, that we may understand, that we may be transformed by your word for us this morning, Lord, that we may see you, that we may come to know you even more than we already do, that we may come to love you and to worship you even more intensely. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be going to the 
um, the book of Isaiah this morning, Isaiah chapter 46. Um, I'll tell you right off the bat, I tend to kind of walk through the passage. So rather than read the script, read the text straight out front and then, and then go into it, I tend to kind of walk through it kind of verse by verse or a couple verses at a time. So you will definitely want to leave your Bibles open this morning. But before we get to Isaiah 46, it's probably good if we kind of take a um, take an assessment, take a take a moment to think about what is the history, what is the context, what is going on here in Isaiah 46. Because if we don't understand the context of what Isaiah is talking about, we're probably going to find ourselves lost. We're probably going to be wondering what is going on, Isaiah. What are you talking about, or God? What are you talking about through Isaiah? So Isaiah, um, Isaiah was a prophet who lived around the time that the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah, where they they were taken captive by the nations of Assyria and Babylon, before being hauled off into what has come to be known as the Babylonian captivity. So Isaiah is ministering, he's prophesying, he's working, he's living and serving right around the tail end of those two kingdoms just before the Babylonian captivity. And this all happened, the captivity, it happened because Israel broke covenant with God and they put their trust in other gods. The bulk of Isaiah's ministry then was geared toward making sure that Israel understood why these things were happening and what God was going to do about them. That said, Isaiah chapter 46 this morning. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops low. Before I go any further, I'm not going to stop every phrase. I'm going to promise you that. But before we go any further, just because you're probably wondering already, who is Bell and who is Nebo? Bell and Nebo are the names of two Babylonian gods. Um, so that's kind of who, that's, that's how this all starts off. Isaiah, um, Isaiah really, this is God speaking. God is talking and addressing Bell and Nebo, these two uh, Babylonian gods and Israel's tendency to worship these two gods. So Bell bows down. Nebo stoops low. Their idols are borne by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off into captivity. I am going to stop there for a second. Let me pose this question before we go any further. Why do people worship the God or the gods that they do? Why do, why do we worship the God that we worship? Why does somebody else worship their God? What is, what is the reason for that? And one of the reasons, one of the reasons that, 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 that draws that, that pushes that, that causes us to worship the gods that we do or anyone of any religion to worship the gods that they do is because of our innate human awareness that we are ultimately, we're pretty weak and we need some extra help in life. That awareness, that awareness that we need help, that we do not have it all together and that we are not ultimately, ultimately, we are not in control of everything. That awareness, it's biblical, but it's the awareness is what, that's what caused Karl Marx, dare I bring him up, Karl Marx to refer to religion as the opiate of the masses. But it is, it is a very biblical concept. We are weak. We need God. That's one of the key messages of scripture as a whole. We need God. And there's no shame in that. There's no shame 
at admitting that. Isaiah 46 is painting a rather humorous picture here in which the gods that the people were trusting in um, for their salvation, that those gods are now being rescued by the people. What kind of a God are you worshiping if your God needs you to rescue it? Verse 3. Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he, I am he who will sustain you. I may, I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. Israel. You're putting your faith in a false God who is dependent on you to rescue it. But I am God. I am God. I am the God who made you. I am the God who will sustain you. I am the God who will carry you and who will rescue you. Get your gods straight, people. Get your God straight. That's what God is saying to Israel here. Get your gods straight. Who is the God that we worship? Why do we worship this God instead of some other God? Verse 5. With whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? Verse 5 is referring to God's holiness. It's another one of these super important attributes. Um, we spent some time looking at holiness out um, this past summer, actually, before we even got to sovereignty. To say that God is holy means that he is different, that he is unique. There is no God like him. And that means something. Verse 6. Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a God and they bow down and they worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and they carry it. They set it up in its place and there it stands. From that spot, it cannot move. Even though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. These people, Israel... These people have a tendency to worship gods that they themselves made. And that's funny. I mean, it's really funny. It's really kind of a joke when you think about it. When I was a kid, um, when I was a kid, I don't know, maybe, maybe Rippin still does this. I don't know. But when I was a kid, I remember VBS here. Um, it used to be basically it was first because first was just down the street up here. It was first. It was Emmanuel and it was Ammon Valley. I said it right. See, that proves that I'm from here. It was Ammon Valley. And the three of us, we would all get together and we would do this combined VBS thing where all the kids would come together and we would walk all over the place. And it was, it was crazy fun. I remember being in VBS and I remember making these these little clay figurines. I'm sure we've all done this in some way. We were making these little clay figurines and you shape it and it's supposed to be some great sculpture that kids make and you set it out and it dries and hardens and you paint it and you bring it home. Um, I remember doing that and then you bring it home, we bring it home and, or could you, I mean, could you imagine, could you imagine making a little figurine like that? Bringing it home, setting it on the mantle or on a, on a shelf or something in your house. And then, and then you start bowing down and you start worshiping it. 
Could you, could you even imagine for a moment what, it, what that would be like? I mean, you made it. You made it. And now you are the one worshiping it. Worshiping what you just made as though that thing somehow has power over you. Who and what are we worshiping and why? That little, that little clay figurine, it, it can't, it can't move on its own. If it's, you know, if, if it's going to move from one shelf to another, I or somebody else, we have to walk over, we have to pick it up and we have to walk it across the room and set it down somewhere else because it's not just going to get up and walk across the room or fly across the room or whatever. It's not going to do that all by itself. It can't. If I ask it a question, it's not going to answer me. If someone breaks into my house, it's not suddenly going to come to life and start doing Kung Fu to protect me and my family. It won't happen. These gods that Israel was worshiping, the things that that you or I might try to put our trust and our faith in, they are 100% incapable of doing the things that we want done. In other words, any god, any god other than God is limited by the same, if not more, constraints than we are, which means that there isn't a single God out there who has all authority or any authority to do what we most need a God to do. No God, no God that is except God. Verse eight. Remember this. Keep it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I made known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. God's sovereignty is often spoken about in terms of strength. What can God do? But it's really actually about God's authority. What is God in control of? Strength and authority, they're, they're related. They're related concepts, but they're, they're not exactly the same thing. Think about, think about a king, for example, or, or a queen. Think about the queen of England, for example. The queen, queens and kings, is, are, they are oftentimes spoken about and given the titles, the labels of a nation's sovereign. They have authority in an absolute monarchy. The king or the queen has the ability to do enormous things to show, to make, to, 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 to do enormous and tremendous kind of shows of strength in many ways. So by a king's authority, for example, he can command an army to invade another country, which is then a show of strength. God's sovereignty, his authority is what gives him his strength and his power to do the things that he does. Look again at verse 10. 
I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. God has the authority to do whatever he wants. He then goes on, as you continue to read through verse 11, he then goes on to say that he could tell birds what to do. Ever try to tell a bird what to do? You know, next time you see a crow in your yard, or for those of you who have orchards and stuff, you know, you, you, you have these crow guns, right? Try to, try to just go out there and just say, hey, birds, why, why don't you just, just move on? You know, or go, go do something else. You know, go do something else somewhere else. It doesn't work. You're not going to get very far because you don't have the ability. God can tell birds what to do. He can make people do things. He can summon people from far off lands and he can send them somewhere else. But how does, how does all this, how does God's sovereignty, how does his authority then, how does it roll over to application for us? God, in Isaiah 46, God, God is making this appeal to Israel this appeal to his authority as a means of calling Israel back to himself. Remember I said at the very beginning, the Babylonian captivity was punishment. It was discipline in many ways for Israel straying and getting away and and worshiping some other God, multiple other gods rather than God himself. And and so the Babylonian captivity was was, was, was the discipline. It was the consequences of their actions. Now God is speaking to Israel in Isaiah 46. He's saying, look, come back to me. All these gods that you've been worshiping, they're worthless. They're not going to do anything for you. They don't have the power, but I have the power. Come back to me. Life was bad for Israel. And it seemed to them at that time that all was lost, that there was no hope. Where and what are you turning to? When you look around and you read the news and you watch the news and you see stories and you see the evidence of a nation that is in many ways quite literally tearing itself apart over political ideologies, who do you turn to? What are you trusting in? When the stresses of housing or finances maybe, or health, keep you up at night. Who are you turning to? I have an uncle who was recently diagnosed with brain cancer. You think about God's sovereignty, you look at a diagnosis like that, and then it makes you wonder, God, what are you doing? What now? I thought you were sovereign. I thought you had power. I thought you had authority and control over these things. But brain cancer? I was thinking about the story of Job as I was um, also thinking about God's sovereignty. And I, I, I read, I actually just read Job last week in my own, in my own devotions. Um, and I was thinking about Job. And, and here's a man, in the story of Job, here's a man who lost everything and experienced probably far more than it would take for any of us to give God the finger and just turn it back and say, God, I don't want you anymore. But rather than turning away from God, He confesses God's authority over all things. 
I was also thinking about John the Baptist. This, this, this past week I was reading the Gospel of Matthew in my devotions, and John the Baptist comes up there quite a bit. And I was thinking about John the Baptist, and I was thinking about the fact that after John was arrested, he sent a message to Jesus. He, he asked Jesus, he said, Jesus, are, are you really the Messiah? Are, are you really the one that we're supposed to be waiting for? Is there somebody else coming? And Jesus, in his response to John, he, he quotes a passage from Isaiah, actually. Um, and it's a passage about how the blind are, the blind are seeing and, and lepers are being healed. But in that quote, he actually cuts it off and he leaves out the part that Isaiah said about captives being set free. Remember, John is in prison. I think John knew what Jesus was saying. I think he knew that what Jesus was saying was, yes, I am the Messiah and I have the power and I have the authority to do all these great things that you're seeing and that you're witnessing, but you're going to die in prison. God's sovereignty. How do we reconcile that? That's the really, really hard part about God's sovereignty for us. He says he's sovereign, and yet all these things that he's supposed to be able to do things about, they go left unaddressed. Almost like God's just ignoring them and not paying any attention. Verse 12. Just let that question hang there. Verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted you who are now far from my righteousness. Every now and then, every now and then, I, uh, I give a pop quiz to the fine people at Faith Christian Fellowship. Um, it's mean, isn't it, that pastors give pop quizzes to their congregations? I warned them of this a couple of years ago. I'm not going to give you the same pop quiz. Uh, I'll just kind of tell you what it is. There's, there's a word that every now and then when it comes up, I'll stop, I'll pause, and I'll look at, I'll look at the congregation that God has blessed me with. I'll, I'll look at them and say, okay, pop quiz time. And everybody just kind of groans. I mean, it's just like, you know, a student in school and the teacher walks in and says pop quiz. And he's like, oh, really? It happens all the time. And it's great. It's kind of funny for me. Um, but they, they, they learn stuff. They learn stuff this way. So I'll give them a pop quiz. I'll stop. I'll say, what, what does it mean to be righteous? That's a pop quiz. It's the same question every time. What does it mean to be righteous? Because righteous and righteousness, it's one of those really, really important words in scripture that talks about our relationship to God, that as disciples, as believers, as his people, we, we need to understand this. We need to be ready with a definition for that one because it's so defining for who we are and how we relate to God. And so I'll ask that. And, and, and here God and Isaiah, they're, they're talking about, they're talking about righteousness right here in verse 12. They're talking about this. That. So what does it mean then to be righteous? To be righteous, a really kind of easy way to think about it, to be righteous means to be in right relationship with God. To be in right relationship with God. And that is, that is vital for understanding God's sovereignty and our connection to it. So verse 12 is saying, look, listen up, y'all. He's saying, listen up, y'all, because you've fallen out of right relationship with me. And recognizing and accepting God's sovereignty over all things is absolutely necessary for being in right relationship with God. In the book of Daniel, there's a chapter, there's a chapter in the book of Daniel that was written by King Nebuchadnezzar. 
I don't know if you realize that. It's weird, right? Because Nebuchadnezzar, he was the guy who built the, um, the giant chocolate bunny, if you're a VeggieTales fan. For those of us who are more mature, it's a gold statue. Um, but Nebuchadnezzar built this giant gold statue, and he commanded everybody to bow down to it. And he was the guy that threw Daniel into the lion's, into the lion's den and all this other kind of stuff. Nebuchadnezzar is sort of understood as the, the bad guy during the Babylonian captivity. Well, Part of the book of Daniel, chapter 4, Daniel chapter 4, is actually written by Nebuchadnezzar, which means that God spoke through him. He inspired Nebuchadnezzar, of all people, to write it. And what happens is that Nebuchadnezzar, he gets caught up in this idea and in thinking that, you know, I am... I'm sovereign over all things. I am basically a God. I can do whatever I want to do. I am the most powerful, the wealthiest person in the entire world. Nobody can stop me. And God, that doesn't go over very well with God. Because God's looking at Nebuchadnezzar and he's thinking, you think so, huh? Watch this. Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy. And he starts acting like a cow and he goes out in the field and he's eating, he's eating grass and he's doing all of this weird stuff that, that we associate with, with animals. And then... After a while, Nebuchadnezzar, he comes, he comes to his senses. And when he does that, he comes back praising God for his superiority, God's sovereignty over Nebuchadnezzar. It's quite the turnaround. Sometimes, sometimes we have a tendency to treat God almost like an equal. Equal to us. Yes, God is love. Yes, he welcomes us to himself and he embraces us as one of his children. But he is not our equal. There are a number of well-loved songs that talk about Jesus being our friend. And ultimately, the songs are speaking, um, what the songs are speaking to is they're speaking to the fact that God is approachable and that, and that he is a safe place and a source of comfort for us. But, but friends are also typically considered to have equality with one another. We need to be a bit careful and nuanced when we talk about Jesus being our friend. Because ultimately what those are, because Jesus, Jesus is your Lord. He is our Lord. He is, he is our sovereign. A friend is someone with whom you have full equality with. And that, that ain't Jesus. That ain't God. God is sovereign. There's nobody like him. He has authority over all things and all people and nothing comes anywhere close to matching him in that regard. So when God says in verse 12, when he says, listen to me, you stubborn hearted, you who are now far from my righteousness, you who are now far from being in right relationship with me. God is addressing the very attitude that comes, that come, that causes us to attempt to strip him of his sovereignty, to bring him down to our level. And we do it in an attempt at trying to exert authority over him and over the circumstances that we find ourselves in. But God's God's sovereignty, it will not be compromised. It will not be taken away. Sovereignty is an acquired taste. There's a lot of people, I run into people all the time who don't like talking about God's sovereignty. 
Because to acknowledge God's sovereignty means that you are not in control. And while that may sound like an absolute nightmare to many of us, it's also the best thing that could possibly exist. Let's take a look at why that is. Verse 13. I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away. Remember, God is speaking. I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away. And my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. Verse 10 again. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Verse 13. I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. God is sovereign. No other God can make those claims. And even if some other God attempted to do so, no other God can match the track record that our God has of making good on those claims. If you are attempting to get relief or comfort from anything other than God, you are worshiping a false God. You are worshiping a God that you yourself have essentially created. And the God that you created is so helpless that it cannot even move from one spot on the mantle to another without you picking it up and moving it yourself. But the sovereign God that we worship does not just have the power to move from one spot to the next. Our God has the power to save. Our God has the power to take upon himself the root cause of all suffering and and pain and hurt and struggle. The sovereign God that we worship is the only God who loves you enough to put aside his divinity, to become human and to allow himself to be crucified in your place. The sovereign God that we worship has authority even over death. The sovereign God that we worship does what he pleases always. And what he pleases is to bring the stubborn hearted and the unrighteous and the sinners close to him. To bring you close to him. And the sovereign God that we worship has granted you salvation without delay. Our God is sovereign. He is sovereign over us. He is sovereign over all. Our God is sovereign. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, while maybe a difficult 
topic or subject or reality to face and to acknowledge. Lord, we find ourselves faced with the reality that we have to acknowledge it. We have to admit, we have to confess, we have to proclaim your sovereignty, Lord, because, Lord, you have revealed and you have made it clear that you and you alone are sovereign, that you are the only sovereign God. You are the only God out of any and all possible gods with the authority to do whatever you want, whatever you please. And what you please, Lord, what you please is to grant us salvation without delay. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for the sovereignty that you displayed on the cross and the empty tomb, the sovereignty that you showed and that you revealed to us and to the world when you defeated death and sin, when your glory was seen by all. Thank you for your sovereignty as we see it in our own life, Lord the ways in which we can see and acknowledge and know your hand at work, the ways in which we find ourselves drawn closer to you to worship you. Lord, you are sovereign. Sovereign over all. You are sovereign. In Jesus' name, amen.